Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey guys. Hello, hello. Hi you guys. Evan, who's on the uh, program, my friend? This week, I got a chance to talk to Javier Zamora. Javier is a poet and a writer. He's based in Arizona now, but he was born in El Salvador. When he was one year old, his father fled El Salvador to the United States because of the US-funded Salvadoran Civil War. His mother followed when Javier was about to turn five years old. He lived with his grandparents there, and then he migrated to the US when he was nine years old unaccompanied by any family or friends that he knew. And I tell you all this because he wrote a best-selling memoir about his journey to the United States, came out last year. It's called Solito, amazing book. I've wanted to talk to him about it. And we did, we talked about the whole story, why and how he wrote the book and his life as a poet and his life as a writer. You said that all so casually, but that sounds amazing. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. And the way he's captured this experience that a lot of people go through, but we don't always hear about from those people is incredible. I'd like to set an intention into the universe here, which is, I'd love to talk to you about your book six months to a year after it comes out. I realized that uh, the general press cycle here is like the week things come out. Come on the long form podcast after you get a break, get some time to process it. We'd love to talk. We make this show uh, in partnership with the fine people at Vox. Thanks very much to them. And now here's Evan with Javier Zamora. Javier, welcome to the Long Fork Podcast. Thank you for having me. The book is beautiful. I just absolutely love this book. And obviously, I want to get into it. But before that, I wanted to start a little bit earlier and talk about your poetry some because I'm interested in sort of how you ended up as a poet to start with. So how did your interest in poetry first sort of come about? Huh. I could answer that in multiple ways, but I'll answer it in what, what seems truer to me is that in El Salvador in the 90s, there was this, I don't even know, maybe it's like cultural or I think it is inherently cultural, but my parents grew up knowing poets from all over the world. And at school, you know, in the book, I talked that I was this valedictorian. And if you're the valedictorian, we have like one, at least one assembly a week. And that person, that kid, which would be me, gets up on stage and recites a poem right before the like uh, Pledge of Allegiance or what have you. Hmm. And so... I had to memorize poems from a very short age. And when I immigrated to this country, my parents talked about, you know, this poet named Pablo Neruda. And then eventually my dad mentioned Claribel Alegría, Roque Dalton, these like inherently Latin American leftists. And a lot of them 
Salvadoran poet. So he was always in the house. But it to me, it was like, okay, like you, this writer, like whatever, I'm not interested. But that was like the foundation in the back of my mind. And it wasn't until I was 17 when finally in English class in high school, we got to the poetry section that, you know, it was only one week. But for that one week, our teacher invited a local poet to come give a workshop. And this poet, Becky Faust, she gives a workshop on the poetry of Pablo Neruda. And I was like, oh, I know that name. And for me, seeing this name that I had never seen in any classroom in the United States kind of clicked everything back, not only to my parents, to the books that they had at home, but also to El Salvador. And she gives us a prompt and the prompt was like, describe your home. And maybe because of the poet uh, being Pablo Neruda, that I heard home as El Salvador. Mm. And the very first poem that I write knowingly, it's called My Land Slash Mi Tierra. So like the very first thing that I write is like in this code switching type of mode. And was there a point at which you thought of sort of writing as a career possibility? Like, when did that enter into it? It didn't come until later. You know, at 17, from that very first poem, you know, and to, to give you some background, I was this uh, Che Guevara t-shirt wearing teenager with long hair. You know, I was like that stereotype. You know, I wanted to start a revolution or whatever. And so because of that, I began to read about the history of my country, which nobody talked about, not even my parents. And I find out that there was a civil war that the United States funded. And so I wanted to learn more. So in my head, after reading, and then this comes into play with my prose, the very first memoir that I read is uh, Motorcycle Diaries by Che Guevara. Ah. And I was, it was around that time, I think 16, 17. So in the back of my mind, there's something that I'm beginning to believe in the power of words. And because I'm beginning to believe in the power of words, I want to become a historian. I want to teach at a university. And early on, I learned that this is 2007, 2006. At that time, in my country of El Salvador, we didn't teach history at any university. Like nobody was teaching what just happened, which was a 12 year plus civil war. And so that was my first goal. I think it took college admissions in order for me to continue to write creatively. By that, I mean that, you know, the first question that people ask is for when you're applying to college is what is the hardest thing that you've survived or that you've overcome? And for me, it was immigrating to this country. And I found that to be a very difficult answer. I knew that I wanted to write that answer. And I didn't have access to therapy, but I did have access to a pen and paper. And so poetry was like this side thing that was helping me process my trauma in a very rudimentary way in order to get me to college to become a historian. It wasn't until I was 20 um, 21. I was a sophomore, junior in college. And at that time, this same poet kept on telling me to apply to these different things. And when I'm 19, I applied to the Breadloaf Writers Conference, which is, I didn't know was a big deal as a 19-year-old to win the scholarship. Um, yeah. And to me, before that, writers were these people that were probably already dead or that didn't exist and that they weren't cool. They were boring. But at this conference, I find other people that are a few years older than me. And I think I was the youngest at 19. And then the oldest fellow was 42. And I found myself being treated as an equal. And we have these like amazing conversations. And I was convinced I think it took me going to Breadloaf, which is such a privileged thing to say, but it took me going there and meeting all these other potential contemporaries, convincing me that poetry was something cool and that there was a quote unquote career and that there were even schools 
to go after undergrad, which I had no idea. Do you remember telling your parents that you were deciding to become a poet? I mean, they're, they're the ones that instilled in you the, this, this belief that poetry could be something important. Did they then regret that when you, when you told them? You know, um, both of my parents grew up during wartime. The war started when they were nine years old, and they left because of the war. Um, my dad left when he was 19. And to them, writers were the people that were telling the truth, and they were the people that were being disappeared, they were being murdered, and they had to flee in exile. And so when I told them that I wanted to write about the war, about my country, and about my own immigration to the United States, they were cautious. They told mm. me, you know, which, you know, it's absolutely not the reality of being a writer in the United States. But they were like, hey, you all have to be aware of what you can and what you cannot say. But also there's, there was a layer of truth in that because we were all undocumented. And so they feared that me writing about crossing the border was going to get me deported. And to this day, I don't think there has ever been a Homeland Security uh, worker at one of my readings or, or a Border Patrol agent. So I think, I think they were wrong in, in believing that. But I think it was just their trauma. And at the same time, when you tell a teenager, oh, don't write because, you know, the government might be after you. A teenager who's wearing, uh, you know, Che Guevara t-shirts and loves Che Guevara, that made me want to write even more. I was like, oh, there's a sense of urgency here. There's a sense of, you know, fighting against whatever the system I, I thought was back then, you know? Yeah. And it was an interesting experience as a reader to, I read the book first, and then I, I went back and read your poems from earlier, from Unaccompanied, and seeing bits of the book sort of woven into those poems, even like similar imagery. And it made me wonder when you were writing poems about the journey that you took to the United States, what were you trying to do then? And was it different from what you eventually were trying to do in prose? Hmm. I think I was just trying to get, well, the poems that are about me, because in the there are poems that are about me, there are poems that are about the war, and there are poems about my parents. For the poems about my own story, I think I just needed to get them out. There was something that I felt eating away at me, which made me a very angry and volatile teenager. And I think I was an angry teenager because I had this trauma that nobody around me could talk about and that I didn't have the right therapist to help me unpack that and so the cheapest thing that i had was poetry and i think that was the goal for the personal poems in unaccompanied just getting them out i thought that i could just by writing them that i was gonna start to heal or to be healed oh i wrote my poem about like almost dying in the desert i wrote this poem about this gringo pointing a shotgun at me that's all I needed to do. Like I'm fixed. Like I, it's, it's outside. I, I've externalized it. But you know, that, that's not how trauma works. It was just the beginning on that road. Um, so it was really having a better grasp at my trauma. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. 
The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Could you describe for people the very basics of the story if they haven't yet read the book in terms of why your parents came and then why you came alone at such a young age? So both of my parents grew up as they described it to me later when I began to ask questions, walking over literal bodies in order to get to school, which is something that I don't think they've ever processed fully. One of my dad's older brother and his fiancee she was killed and he was disappeared and this all happened in our hometown and because of that my dad was also left-leaning and the war in el salvador was very right-wing against the leftists and the united states was giving money to the military that was disappearing people and murdering people and eventually Once my dad was 19, I was born when he was 18. He has to flee our hometown. And then my mom, the war is in quotes over in 1992 when I'm two years old. And she has to leave in 1995 because not a lot of things have changed for most people, but especially women. You know, she can't find a job. She's getting harassed every time that she's going to a job interview. It's a bad place to be. And so then she leaves me at the care of my grandparents and my aunt. And so I grew up with them from ages five till nine. And by 1997, their conversations changed from, we're going to work in the United States and go back and be with you, to, hey, more People are beginning to get murdered again in your hometown. We think it's better for you to come and be with us in the United States. And so they try, for lack of a better term, the legal way to get me a visa to the United States. Of course, the government's not going to give me a, a tourist visa. And then we try a fake visa and that doesn't work. And then we try the most reasonable and safest thing that my parents had, you know, thought out in their brains, which was to use the exact same coyote or smuggler that my mom had used four years prior, which for her, if I can use a word, it was a relatively safe trip. And that man was with her every single step of the way. And so they expected the same treatment to their nine-year-old child. And so on April 6th of 1999, this kid, me, embarks on this trip with this man and his grandpa, who accompanies me up until the Mexico-Guatemala border. But he's not by himself. He's with the coyote, with this 30-year-old mom named Patricia, her 12-year-old daughter, Carla, this 20, 21-year-old young man named Chino, a 35-year-old man named Chele, a 29-year-old uh, from his hometown named Marcelo, 
and this beautiful woman named Marta. And eventually, Marta and Coyote leave the six behind in a small fishing village in at the border of Guatemala and Mexico. And from then on, for the next seven weeks, that group of six have to figure out how to make it to the U.S.-Mexico border and eventually the United States. And so it's told in the present tense. So it's my nine-year-old self telling that story, not knowing a lot of things, particularly not knowing how close to death I literally was multiple times. I was interested in the present tense and why you chose to tell it in the present tense. You know, it didn't come out that way. I started writing this book in April of 2019. And I began writing it, you know, Harvard of all places, thinking and believing the rhetoric that I had internalized unknowingly of, oh, look at this immigrant who has suffered so much and has climbed the ladder to the pinnacle of education institutions, which is Harvard. And let me tell you how I got here, you know, almost like a traditional um, memoir. That was me then. I suffer so much. Look at me now. I am succeeding. That's how it started. And when the writer is bored by, you know, their own writing, that's a bad sign. (laughs) And so I was like reading and writing this thing that was boring. And I read uh, Edwidge Danticat's Crick Crack and the very first story in that book it's a love story of two Haitian immigrants, one's in Haiti and one is on a boat trying to make it to the United States. And in the best way possible, reading that story almost re-traumatized me because I could picture and remember the boat scene that I described from that small fishing village of Ocos into Oaxaca, Mexico. And it took that story for me to shift into the present tense. And I had, I want to say like 5,000 words of what eventually became the boat scene in the present tense. And as a writer, I was like, oh, these are moving better. Like this sounds better than the rest of what I've written. And then I find an agent and I give him everything. At first I wanted my book to be this like, poetry, memoir, present tense. I was, it was trying to do too much. And what my, what Bill, my agent said, mm, you know, uh, this section is really working. And that <laughs> section was the boat section. He was like, why don't you, we try to shift everything to the present tense? And I didn't listen. I was like, he doesn't know, like, I'm going to show him that this is, it's not going to be like that. And he doesn't know this. And that was July by October. I find the therapist that would change my life. And upon maybe not the first session, but the second session, she puts this idea because I tell her I'm I'm a writer and I'm writing about this very traumatic thing that happened to me. She's like, why don't, you're a writer, okay, why don't we try or why don't you try putting yourself in your own, in your nine-year-old shoes? Like, what would that look like? Hmm. Can you like describe to me in the present tense. And this is like an exercise. And I was crying. And, you know, I was like, wow, there's something working here. And I think it took my agent and my therapist to convince me to shift everything into the present tense. From October 2019 onwards, I was trying, attempting to put everything in the present tense. And I thought it was better. More words were coming out. And so it was like the universe was telling me, you you have to tell this in, in this way. Can you explain what that felt like when you had to sit down to write? Like I can sort of conceptualize it as you're in therapy and like getting into that mode. Okay, what was the nine-year-old you like? But then every time you sat down, were you sort of like, now I am, I'm entering the mind of nine-year-old me? And what did that feel like? Like a ton of rocks right over your shoulders just like pressing you down onto the computer. It seemed overwhelming, like I couldn't finish, that I didn't want to. A lot of me didn't believe that people would care. And I knew 
that that would mess me up even more, you know, because as, as an immigrant in this country, you know, innately that a lot of the population in this country doesn't care about you. And you begin to believe that. And so that was the biggest hurdle that I had to overcome my own internal voice of like, why are you writing this? It's not going to change anything. It's not going to matter. Like blah, 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 blah. And you have to remember that 16 year old kid is also a voice there that Che Guevara, you know, you have to write something, you have to change the world. You have to do something meaningful. So both of these voices were like fighting against each other. And I would sit down and now I wasn't drinking as much because I, I met my therapist because I thought that I could write well on two or three martinis at a bar, which is not how you write a book. And so the alcohol wasn't, was no longer involved, but now I had no coping mechanism to fool me that I didn't have to feel all of the feelings. You know, this is very difficult. And I think the writing and the therapy had to go side by side. And then eventually you throw perhaps the biggest factor in my life, which was my now wife, who I meet in March of 2020, who, you know, it took my wife, my agent and my therapist, the people that were cheering me on, that were telling me that this matters. It's good. You need to finish. We believe in you. And little by little, as the weeks went on, it felt like they were taking these rocks away from on top of my shoulders. And I felt lighter and lighter. And it wasn't only them taking the rocks away, but it was also me. The further I got into the story, the lighter I felt. Because again, I was actually externalizing like I had done with poetry. But now I was externalizing purposefully with the help of professionals, you know, with the help of my therapist and my wife, who is a Reiki practitioner. And we were like meditating and it was a pandemic. So I could afford to have all this time to dedicate just to writing and to healing. And even having this conversation would have been something very difficult for me back in 2019. But now all those tons of rocks are casted away somewhere and I feel lighter and, you know, like I, I can better manage and have a better understanding of that nine-year-old kid um, and of who I was and how that has shaped me now as a 33-year-old man. You know, that kid is not going anywhere. He still comes up. Um, but now I can have empathy for him, which is something that I didn't have even for myself. You mentioned, you know, the danger that you were in, you know, on that journey at that age that you didn't even recognize at that time. From a writing perspective, how much did you have to refine the voice to try to get to the one that was the sort of pure nine-year-old voice, excluding what you knew afterwards, but also including so much, like there's so much sort of like awe and wonder that a nine-year-old kid has at kind of seeing the world that's also in the book that felt really unique to me. And I, I, I was really interested in how you kind of like got in the frame of mind to recapture that. Just putting it all on the page, you know, it's not on the first draft. I want to say that the book eventually came in at 145,000 words, which is a lot. There were a lot of riffs on Goku, uh, Dragon Ball Z, a lot of riffs <laughs> on the landscape and cactus and what it looked like even more scenes of the kid being very aware that they needed to learn how to poop and comfortably, you know, that all of that was trimmed down and cut some by me, most by my wife and my agent <laughs> who were like, okay, we get it. You love Goku. Let's, let's cut all of that. <laughs> and so I don't think that you can edit as you write. I think that comes after it. You just have to get all the words on paper in order to like chisel away afterwards. And so there was a lot of chiseling that my community, my support system helped me also get to. I mean, the book is very gripping. The journey is very gripping, but also somehow full of boredom. Like there's all of these periods of intense boredom that are melded into 
what is also like an extreme, like I couldn't put the book down, you know? Thank you. And, you know, thank you for saying that because I wanted to capture the boredom. And those were also, you know, my, I think it was my agent who was like, okay, this is, we get that it has to be boring, but it's, it's actually boring. <laughs> <laughs> and so we also had to trim that down because, you know, a lot of immigration stories are not told by the immigrants themselves. And when it's not an immigrant, I think there's this fantasy that if you're making it to this country, you're always alert and that, you know, you always have to be, which is true, but not for the entirety of the trip. You know, in reality, there's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of not doing anything. There's just chilling under a tree. You know, there's just like being inside of a warehouse, waiting for a bus, napping as much as you can in order to rest. And so the boredom was necessary. In terms of, of like recapturing the experience and the details of that experience, when you started, did you have anything other than memories in terms of things you'd written down over the years or documented in some other way that you could kind of turn to to jog memories? My most prized possession is literally the very first book that I ever wrote, which was when I made it to this country. The first 10 weeks of school, I had to meet with the school counselor and process what I had just gone through. And so me and her wrote this book called Javier's Journey. She titled it. And the book is comprised of 10 drawings that I, I drew. And as I was drawing, I was telling her what I had gone through. And then she wrote it in English. And I think there's only one sentence that I write myself in Spanish. And it describes this trip. So that gave me the rubric to what became Solito. And in that book, as an adult, and even as a teenager, I never opened it because it just reminded me, you know, I draw myself behind bars. I draw myself, you know, these are nine-year-old drawings running away from a helicopter. I draw myself walking past a dead coyote. You know, all of these very horrific, traumatic things that before writing this book, I had only opened that book, I want to say like five times. And if you see that book, there are tear marks and those are my tears. Because when I didn't have that community and that support system, this story was this story that I couldn't talk about and I couldn't even remember. And again, like I think that exercise as a nine-year-old of externalizing this story eventually was like the beginning of like the externalization that I did with poetry. And then it helped me get to the externalizing that I do in Solito. And so I had that when you go through trauma for me, not for everybody, but what my nine-year-old brain did is that it froze these very intricate and fully detailed Blu-ray high-definition DVDs, you know, like of scenes. I've never forgotten them and I never will. I don't even think I do them justice in the book because they're so alive in my mind to this day. I can like smell the dirt when the soldiers are pointing guns at us in Oaxaca and I'm like on the floor. I could taste the salt on, on that boat in the Pacific Ocean the feeling of thirst that you can't even describe when like saliva becomes like water in the desert. All those things are very much alive and I'm never going to forget them. What was difficult. So I had that, I had those images that are fully detailed. I had this book and I also had, you know, the privilege of by then in 2019, having a green card. Mm -hmm. that I could come to Tucson and explore, if I want to use that word, the desert, in order to really see where exactly it was that I crossed, which I didn't know. I knew it was in the desert. I All I had were my memories of the flora and fauna and like railroad tracks. And then I went to the desert with, ironically enough, somebody who 
had once been a border patrol agent who is also a writer who, if you meet him, you can't ever imagine that he was ever a border patrol agent. Um, and he's the writer, uh, Francisco Cantu. And now we're close friends. And so me and him went into this stretch of desert that he patrolled and that I crossed through. And I would tell them, hey, like, there were these two cities and there were railroad tracks that we could see and we were walking through them. And it was like, oh, okay, I know. Like, there's only one sector of the desert that in which it could have been. And then we go there at dawn. And of course, flashbacks, yes, this is where it happened. And we did that for, I think we went to the desert like three times. And so I had him, another member of the community. I had the book and I had my memories. And with it, Solito came out. I read the letters that you and and he exchanged that were in Granta about that trip, which was fascinating. And I, I was interested in like, how did you, you get to that moment where you say, aha, this is this place. And then did you record something or write, go back to the, where you were staying and write something immediately? Like, how did you capture that feeling and like, get it down while you were in that moment? Very old school. You know, I should have recorded things. <laughs> uh, I just had my, my little moldskin notebook that, you know, something came, I would like write the details. I remember the very first time that I walked towards the pedestrian crossing in Nogales, which is this circular thing that had not changed since 1999. I was like, holy shit, like, this is it. This is where we were waiting for Chino. And so I recorded the name of the stores that are still there and this train track too. And the fence was the only place along the border where there was a fence and it was still there. And so I just wrote down the details. I wrote it. Then I went home days later, wrote the scene. And then months later, went back to see if the scene made sense. Mm. And so, no, I think I just had to take it in. I had to take the landscape in and I had to allow myself to believe that what I remembered was true, which that was another voice that was telling me, no, you're making it up. This didn't happen. And in therapy, now I understand that voice as being necessary because that's what your brain wants you to do when you go through something traumatic. It doesn't want it to be true. Like it's trying desperately to convince you that you're making it up, that this is fiction. And and going to the border with Francisco Cantu, that to me was like, oh no, this happened. It happened exactly how you're remembering it. And that's okay. It's okay. Now write it. And you mentioned Chino. And I I feel like from reading the book in the way that if you read a novel, like I feel like I know these people. And of course, like I think anyone who reads the book probably is hoping that at the end you'll say, we're still in touch and I still talk to them. And and you don't find out until the very end that you're not connected with anyone who was on the journey with you, including the people that you were closest with who helped you. And it just struck me as like maddening to not be able to ask them when you're describing these scenes and writing these scenes, how they experienced it. But I wonder how you thought of that as you were writing the book, like a responsibility to tell everyone's story or actually maybe a bit of freedom because this is your story. It's not actually their story. The latter, you know, and again, like, I suggest every writer have a therapist. <laughs> but, you know, it, meeting weekly with my therapist in which, you know, this question was also one of those voices that was keeping me from writing at times. And that voice said, how can you tell their story? How can you really humanize them? How can you get people to care about them? And like, is it okay that you're pretty much like putting words in their mouth when you can't check. And what my therapist said was that this is your story. This is how you remember it. And their story probably doesn't sound like mine. Mm -hmm. You know, they were older. They could see the horrific things that we went through, through a different lens. And I think that took me a while to actually believe as well. And now I think I've done enough therapy work to feel okay 
I think if strangers care about these individuals, a fraction of the amount that I care about these individuals, I portray them well. And it makes it gives me joy when the most frequently asked question is exactly that. Are you in touch with the four, with Patricia, Carla, and Chino? That tells me that I have humanized them and that this is my way of paying them back for people to see them for the beautiful individuals that they were. Another book that I really appreciated that had some of that effect was Oscar Martinez's book, The Beast. Hmm. They're very different books. Like his is an immersive journalistic account of people taking a journey to try to get to the United States. I thought that book was very powerful, but I wondered how you felt about a book like that that's told from a journalistic perspective and not from the perspective of the people who actually did it. Hmm. Interesting question. <laughs> I'll answer that by telling you that I've read a lot of other books that are perhaps not as dark and as detailed as Oscar Martinez's The Beast that actually traumatized me more and angered hmm. me more hmm. because they were a bit more detached than Oscar, who is, you know, out there so much that he will also border the trains with these individuals. Yeah. And he put his life at risk. Then we can question that decision altogether. But because he was on those trains, I think he captured it in like a real way. You also need accounts that completely describe the horrific things that these humans are going through, which I went through from a journalistic perspective. But you also need different narratives like mine who are not only focused on the trauma. I think if there is a critique of the beast is that it overly focuses on the trauma that these individuals are going through, which of course, they're like aboard a beast, a train, and a lot of people die. Everybody's getting robbed all the time, to say the least. I mean, having read that book previously, I feel that it filled me with a certain sense of terror reading Solito that I, I just thought that horrible things were going to happen that affected my, my reading of it in some ways that I've kind of found myself saying, oh, it's not that didn't happen or like there are these moments of humor and beauty along this like traumatizing story. Well, the truth is in the middle, yeah. you know, again, like you have to remember that it was a nine year old telling the story. I think Carla's story, even at 12 would have looked different. I think I had the privilege of being so naive. You know, I sincerely thought that this was just a trip. And I think that's what my brain did too. You know, let's enjoy this as best as we can. Let's be hopeful. I never once doubted that I was going to see my parents again. And my therapist likes to say that each of us contributed something to the group. You know, uh, Chino tried to be the protector. Um, Patricia was the one looking out for our well-being. Carla was looking after me. She was like the sibling. And me, I was the holder of the hope. I gave the group hope because I didn't know any better. And so this is that story. This is a story that if this were to be a movie, it's just focused on this kid when a lot of people are perhaps dying and being left in the desert, but he can't understand that. Because you know when you're in a life and death situation, if your brain is doing a good job, it's trying to make you survive. And for this nine-year-old, survival meant not knowing what was going on around the reality of the horrific things that an adult like Oscar Martinez can fully see. Mm. And I think how old you are really dictates how you remember and how you experience the trauma that you're going through. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I think for Oscar, when he wrote that book, I think it was in his late 20s, early 30s, that's how it was. When you were just trying to get the book out and down and edited and refined, did you along the way think about 
who the reader might be or who you wanted the reader to be or who you expected it could be that the book was for someone it was for me early on not to sound like a broken record but this, this was like this was a major theme for within therapy you know at first i felt the pressure of like writing this salvadoran narrative that every salvadoran you know was gonna read and it was gonna heal everybody you know that 16 year old che Guevara uh, voice but that's too much to ask you can't control what happens after the book is out of your hands and so prior to releasing the book my therapist described that as you know this nine-year-old kid you're gonna you walk him to the subway station and you're gonna put him in the train you're not going to know where he's going to get off or where the F train is going to end this day. You know, there might be delays, whatever, but you're going to stay on the platform and you can't control what happens. And so because of that, you can't help who your audience is, but you can help that if the audience is you. So eventually along the way, this book was just for me. It's just the book that has helped me externalize my trauma and that has helped me heal. But then another layer to that is like, but who am I? I am this nine-year-old survivor of the desert. I am from El Salvador. There's a lot of Salvadoran words in there. I am an immigrant. I am brown. You know, all of these things that are who I am. And so now if any of those labels mean anything to you, now there is a book for a nine-year-old Salvadoran boy who has just immigrated to this country. Mm-hmm. That book exists, which it didn't before. Um, but it's also for whoever likes to read. Yeah. Well, I also think from my, my own particular perspective, I, I read it and I think, I wish that anyone who had an opinion about immigration policy had to read this book before they were forced and many other books. But do you ever have that frustration? Like that part of me felt like the people who I'd love to read this book are are not going to read it. You know, a part of me believes that that might happen. I think I am a writer because of uh, Motorcycle Diaries and that kid, you know, there are different versions of yourself. And for me, a big version of myself, that nine-year-old kid, but also this teenager. This teenager who really believed that words could change the world, like wholeheartedly, as teenagers do, and as they should. And I think that having this book out eventually might change something. Maybe not a politician, maybe not policy itself, but somebody's journey in understanding their own trauma better. And that's enough. What I want you know, the president or the former president to read this book, of course. Would them reading a book actually change policy? Probably not, you know, but we'll see that there's hope. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that it does. You're you're sometimes described in bios um, as a poet, writer, and activist. And I'm always interested in that because sometimes people because they write about certain things, the activist just gets thrown in there by others. So first I was wondering, do you self-describe that way? No, I don't. But I, I approach it from a way that there are so many individuals who actually are acting every single day of their lives. You know, I, I guess I, foc- I overly focus on that first part of that word, activist. And individuals like... Dora Rodriguez, you know, who is the founder of Salva Vision, or all the pro bono lawyers who are part of the Florence Project, um, you know, who are doing this for free, helping people get papers. I would call them activists. I'm writing. Um, most of the time I'm at home, <laughs> you know, trying to rest and write. I wouldn't call that activism. Do I volunteer whenever I can and go to like the Kino initiative or like talk to, to the order of the people? Yeah. But th- does that make me an activist? No, it doesn't. 
I think there needs to be more respect for that word and for those people. And again, that might be that my teenager speaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, I mean, one thing you have sort of advocated for recently, or you've spoken out about is this literary prize and journalistic prize boards, mm-hmm. not allowing non-citizens at various levels to apply for the awards. So can you first explain how that played out in the poetry world for you and now what's happening sort of in the nonfiction world that you were writing about? I think it was in the LA Times. Thank you for for asking that. The context is I recently wrote an article saying that not only the Pulitzer, but the National Book Awards and all the awards in this country shouldn't be asking for citizenship requirements in order to be granted an award. Before that, in 2014, when I was getting my MFA and beginning to apply for poetry contests, you know, again, the context is that in Latin America, and I grew up believing that writing circles were the vanguard of change, meaning that if there are people dreaming for a better and just world, it is writers themselves. So that's my background. And so when I'm 22 years old and submitting my book of poems to poetry contests, at the time, I want to say there were like 14. And out of the 14, 12 of them have this weird sentence that says, must be a U.S. citizen to win. That felt like a slap in the face. Like, how does this make sense? And out of those 12... Six of them quickly changed. They're like, oh my God, we didn't know that that was on there. We are sorry. Which also tells you a lot about Americans in general uh, regarding immigration. Oh, we didn't know. Okay. The rest of them, you know, they grasped at the meaning of American. You know, we are the Walt Whitman American Prize, you know, first book prize. So you must be an American to win. I was like, okay, define American. And so eventually two of those prizes in poetry didn't budge. And so Christopher Loma Soto and Marcelo Castillo, two writers, we went public and had this petition. And in which I want to say over 800 writers uh, signed on to it. And eventually the Academy of American Poets comes out with this statement, blah, blah, blah. So there shouldn't be any citizenship requirements in poetry now. Fast forward to 2023, not even when my book comes out in 2022. The Pulitzer Committee emails me asking me to be a judge for their 2023, this year's memoir competition hey, can you, like, this is a great honor. And then I ask around and somebody sends me an article in the LA Times of like, hey, this is weird. You guys are requiring citizenship in order to win an award. And so I wrote back to them, hey, I, I don't think that I can judge this because I wasn't even taken into consideration to begin with. How can you ask a judge that can't win an award to judge an award? That doesn't make sense. And so it angered me. I wasn't going to, I didn't care. You know, a lot of people uh, might think that I'm just complaining. I had, I was unaware that I wasn't even considered until they reached out to me themselves. And so I guess now it's my duty of, as a, you know, this teenager to put them on blast and just to put attention to the absurdity of what it means to ask for citizenship in order to be considered human. You know, we already, as immigrants, we already have the government against us who doesn't consider us fully human. We have, uh, you know, the media who talks about us in a negative way. We have uh, trolls on the internet reminding us that we don't belong here. The last thing we need is a very quote-unquote respectable institution to also remind us that we don't belong here. And so that's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So last question for you. Maybe it's a little meta, like I'm also complicit in this, but you've, you've written this book, you've talked about processing 
you know, a lot of the trauma associated with the journey that you took when you were nine years old. And then you, then you have to have all these conversations about it, including this one. And is it something that you want to keep doing or that you want to at some point set aside? I mean, it's obviously always a part of you and it's your story and it's your book, but I just mean, is there a point at which you, you, you sort of like, I would like to move on to a, a different topic than this and not be discussing this story? Yes and no. You know, I am very aware that if you are an immigrant in this country, it is hard for you to have access to mental health. It is hard for you to have the privilege of time to address the trauma, which for me, all the stars aligned when I was 29. I have my you know, family members who are still undocumented who can't afford to take a day off to find the right therapist and who don't have health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's important for me to say all these things and to perhaps lead by example of what could be if all the you know chips fall in the right place i don't know if that's an expression but um but you know this doesn't happen for us especially you know if you're a latino man talking about therapy that's just not something that usually happens not that it doesn't happen but it doesn't usually happen and also being a survivor of immigration and for me to to be on this road of healing for me talking about it that doesn't usually happen but if i talk about it maybe it allows somebody who doesn't really want to remember but because they don't want to remember it's affecting their daily lives but now they see a clip of this or they listen to this podcast and i'd be like oh that's a possibility you know i think it's important for me to continue to do this work at the same time from a writer perspective like as a as an artist or what have you i want to go somewhere else i think you need an obsession in order to finish something my obsession right now and what also helped me heal is understanding that i am indigenous you know i am nawatpipi and sadly in my country the language that we spoke in the central part of the country is gone. Hmm. It's a dead language. There's another like cousin of it, the Nahuatl from Isalco of that region of the country, that there are about 225 speakers left in the world. I think in 2023, it is important for us indigenous Salvadorans to remember and to honor our indigenous past and to not fall victims to the colonization that has happened since 1492. You know, you go and ask a Salvadoran, they would never, uh, most Salvadorans wouldn't accept that they are indigenous. In fact, that word is a bad word and it's a slur. And so I think that is my obsession, you know, mm. writing something that reminds us of who we are, because I think I need to be reminded of that as well. And even me saying that I am indigenous, I wouldn't have said that before a year and a half ago. You know, I think this is only like the fifth time that I publicly say that, but I am, and that's okay. And I need to explore that. And we need to explore that as a people. And we're not only, only indigenous, we're also black. You know, we are black Salvadorans and we have to unpack that and we can't be racist. You know, we are very racist in my, in my nation and we also have to do away with that. And do you know what form that obsession is going to take? <laughs> um, there's a novel in the works. We'll see. Um, we'll see if it, if it, if I don't get bored with it and it doesn't shift uh, forms, which it might, but for now, 
it's a good obsession and it's it's producing words which is good well thank you for writing this book and thank you for taking so much time to talk to me about it no thank you so much it's been an honor it's been great that's it for this week's show Thanks to Javier Zamora for coming on the show. His book is called Solito. I highly, highly recommend it. This show was edited this week by Gabriela Saldivia. Our show notes are from Megan Valley. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Vox, who helps us make the show. And we'll see you next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.